Well, hello everybody. Good to see my friends at MAFRA. It was great to catch up with some of you by Zoom a few weeks ago and uh, I look forward to the day when we can be together in person again. Uh, but we're continuing our series in the book of Isaiah, looking at uh, the writings of the prophet Isaiah. So let's uh, pray as we begin. Loving Heavenly Father, help us to be like your servant Samuel all those years ago who said, uh, Master, speak, your servant is listening. So speak to us today, we pray, and help us to have open ears uh, and open eyes and open hearts to receive your word and to believe it and to obey it. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, the world divides into two very neat groups. Uh, there's those who like bluegrass music and those who don't. I'm in the uh, pro-bluegrass camp. Uh, but Ricky Skaggs is one of the, uh, the modern era's uh, great bluegrass musicians and he's got a terrific group called Kentucky Thunder. I bought a copy of their live album a few years ago and uh, it starts with these words. Ricky says, well, I hope you all come to hear some bluegrass tonight because he says, if you don't like bluegrass, we're both in the wrong place. Uh, yeah, and who wants to be in the wrong place? Now, what's this got to do with Isaiah? Well, if you don't like history, you're in the wrong place. I hear people every now and again, I used to teach history at school and I'd have people say, oh, history's boring. Henry Ford, the great uh, motoring pioneer, once said that history is bunk. Uh, and people can be a bit like that. Uh, but the fact is, if you're a Christian, you need to like history because ours is, in, is an historical faith. Uh, God has revealed himself in history. God has spoken to real people in real places a long time ago and those words have been recorded for us. But it's not just the words, it's the things that happened around those words. God has revealed himself in history and he, his word shows us that history is leading to somewhere. Uh, there's, this, there's this conclusion to which we're, we're, we're moving. So history moves in a line. And of course, Jesus is a part of that. Even the message of Jesus is now 2,000 or so years old. Um, but the sorts of things that Jesus came to say and do... Uh, can't be repeated. There's only once that, uh, that God can enter history as a human to pay the price of sin. So we've got to come to grips with the fact that, that ours is in an historical faith and getting to grips with the facts of history is really very important. So that's what we're going to do today as we look at Isaiah 36 and 37. Uh, this is quite different from a lot of the things we've been seeing in Isaiah up until now. Uh, but it's asking the same sort of questions and posing the same sort of challenges as the rest of the content of the book of Isaiah, but it's doing it through the lens of reporting of real history, things that actually took place. And we're thinking today about where is your confidence? In what do you put your faith and your trust? Now, throughout this series, we've been thinking about Isaiah, uh, the book, as oscillating between threat and promise between the threat of judgment and the promise of salvation and reward. Now, the story so far, Yahweh, God, the great I Am, has promised that there will be another David. A Davidic king will rule the nations because God had promised David that he would always have a descendant on the throne. This coming Davidic king, the one that later generations would call the Messiah, or the Christ, his rule will involve judgment and salvation. So this king will judge the wicked and will reward the faithful and the righteous. We find revealed in these earlier chapters of Isaiah that even Judah's great enemies, Egypt and Assyria, will be included under the reign of that great messianic king if they repent and believe in the God of Israel. 
And so we find again and again the prophet calls God's people in Jerusalem and Judah to obey the word of God because they've turned their back on God. They've disregarded his word. They've treated it lightly. Yahweh's promises require obedience in the present. And so that's manifested in the way that they live and in the way that they conduct their lives in regard to the poor, but also in the way that they express their trust in God by doing as he commands, by doing as he requires. And in particular, they mustn't solve their political crises by going to other nations for assistance. So here's a little summary of it. They need to abandon treaties and they need to trust God and that is the pathway to reward. So treaties or trust, are you going to look to Egypt? Are you going to make peace with Assyria, these pagan nations, or will you continue to trust in God and his word and his protection? They're the challenges that face. And so the question is, where is your confidence? And this is a challenge for us as believers. Where's your confidence? Every generation has its own problems, its own challenges. And because we only get to live in one generation, if those challenges become acute, we might be tempted to think, oh, no one's ever had it as bad as this. Well, that may not be so. Uh, But the fact is we do have to face up to the challenges of our own generation. And every time we do so, the question is, will we do it in a godly way? Will we come to those challenges which uh, trouble and perplex us firm in our faith that God is working his purposes out in history and he can be trusted to do what he's promised, even in the face of adversity? Well, in chapter 34... We've seen the oscillating swing back to threat again. And in chapter 34, we read of the very real prospect of judgment where cities will be destroyed and they'll be left to wild animals. Uh, God is going to bring a work of judgment on all the nations of the earth, he says. But then in contrast, we get chapter 35, which is full of wonderful promises of desert places being renewed and being places full of beautiful wildflowers where illness and disease is a thing of the past, where people are able to enjoy the presence of God in a realm of perfect peace. We have these incredible contrasts of judgment in 34, promise and salvation in 35. And we're going to find exactly the same thing in chapters 36 to 39. Uh, But it's going to be posed in, in historical terms as a question and we need to look at what what happens in history and work out which of these responses is the right one so after the promise of chapter 35 we get to the very real threat of chapter 36 and 37 and it's that looming threat of an Assyrian invasion now we've looked at this history at various points along the way but Assyria was the dominant world power at that time and they were on the march and they were coming to the very walls of Jerusalem as we'll see and the, the questions that these words pose is, is Yahweh really sovereign? We've heard all the way through Isaiah saying, yes, he is. God is sovereign over the whole world. He's the creator. He's the one who's supremely in control. We're about to see a test case played out in the real facts of history. Can God's promises be trusted even when your direst enemy with its massive army is at your doorstep? So this is a test for the faithful people of the time in which Isaiah was prophesying. And we can learn lessons for the tests that we face now. So the world at that time, Assyria was the dominant world power, the symbol of terror and tyranny in the Near East for more than three centuries. So for over 300 years, Assyria had ruled other people. They'd captured them. They dominated them. 
And they didn't do it pleasantly. They were not benevolent rulers. They were cruel. They were harsh. King Sennacherib was the king at that time. Now, what we're going to do is, is look through most of the words of these chapters, 36, Isaiah 36 and 37. I hope you've read them. Please do. Um, but uh, I'll just be ob- making some observations and comments as we go. So most of the text will be on the screen. So please follow along. So chapter 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up. Now, it was traditional in those days that you dated your calendar from how long it was since your current king had been in power. So this is the 14th year of King Hezekiah. And what happened that year? King Sennacherib of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he took them. That's bad news. So Hezekiah had fortified the outlying cities in the hope that that would prevent uh, the Assyrians coming through and it didn't. And so if you look at the map here, you'll see that, uh, that, that our text names a couple of cities that were dominated and, and, and crushed by the advancing Assyrian army, Lachish being one of them. Now, if you were to go to the British Museum, you'd see relief carvings that were from the, the palace of the king and they record in sculptural form the story of the conquest of Lachish. And so you can see there at the left of the picture the, uh, the siege ramps being built up. You can see the people behind the walls praying, hoping that things will be work out better. You can see down below the terrible things that the Assyrians did to the people that fought against them. Um, the, the, uh, this, this is how the, the king went to sleep at night, reminding himself of the conquests of his armies. And so there are the siege, uh, the, the battering rams crushing the walls. Uh, and the Assyrian armies were very disciplined and they fought with spear and sword and shield. And at the end, if they captured people alive, they scunned them. They scunned them while they're still alive. That's what flaying is. And they're the sorts of things that happened to the people that opposed them. Now, we know a lot about the history of that time because Sennacherib had it written down. And so again, in the British Museum, you find the Sennacherib prism. And on there is recorded the version of history from the Assyrian point of view. So this is 701 years before Christ. And it was recorded there because Hezekiah of Jerusalem did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his fortified cities. I conquered them using earthen ramps and and battering rams. I took 200 1,150 prisoners of war. I imprisoned Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. I erected siege works to prevent anyone anyone escaping through the city gates. So it was a terrifying thing to to have the Assyrians on your doorstep and they had had come right to Jerusalem. Now, Lachish was once a a thriving city. It was a, a a very well fortified city, but in the end it was left just dust and ruins. And all that survives of Lachish today is this mound, this tell, Uh, It's still there and it's still waiting to be excavated. So who knows what they'll find when they start to dig there, if they ever do. But Lachish was just left as ashes, dust and ashes. So back to chapter 36 of Isaiah, 36 verse 2. The king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So from Lachish to Jerusalem was a distance of a bit over 30 kilometres, probably around 40 kilometres, not very far. Imagine if the world's dominant superpower had crushed a city 40 kilometres from where you live and then they send a very large contingent of that military force with the, uh, the king's own chief of staff to threaten you because that's what's happening here. 
So the Rabshakeh is the chief of staff of the, uh, the king of Assyria, and he's come to Jerusalem to say, it's time for you to give in. You've seen what we've done elsewhere. So here he is, the Rabshakeh, and three representatives of Jerusalem come out to speak to him. There came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So they came out as representatives of the city to speak to the king's number one officer. Now he's intent on intimidating the people who are inside Jerusalem's walls. And so in verses 4 to 6, we read him say, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all all who trust in him. So the Rabshakeh says, what are you putting your confidence in? What are you putting your hope, your faith in? Right? Don't think that Egypt's going to help you because we've already beaten them. He goes on and in verse 7 he says, But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you should worship before this altar? So yes, Hezekiah, we read about that in 2 Kings, the the the, the History of this whole section is, is told at various points, so Second Kings and also in Second Chronicles. You can read about it. And Hezekiah did attempt to purify the worship of, of Judah by abandoning the high places. Uh, and the Rabshakeh has taken that as being an act against God. He didn't understand Jewish faith at all, uh, which is a lesson for us too. Don't learn your theology from the opponents of our faith. Uh, we need to keep coming back again and again to the Bible. But Hezekiah was right to do that because that's exactly what God said should have been done in Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12, God made it very plain. There was only one place to do your sacrificing and that was in the the place he would make his name to dwell, which turned out to be Jerusalem. But the Rabshakeh has interpreted the the reforming zeal of, of Hezekiah as being actually in opposition to Yahweh, the true God. But his intimidatory threats go on in verses 8 and 9. He says, come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? He's boasting of the, the vast army of Assyria. And he's saying, you guys haven't got even enough. If you could get 2,000 horsemen, we'd, we'd, we'd give them to you. Um, if you could put riders on them. Uh, he's saying there's no contest. But that's what Isaiah's been saying all along. This is a, a deep irony. Um, why would they be trusting in Egypt, says the Rabshaker? But that's exactly what Isaiah's been saying. Why would you trust in Egypt when you should be trusting in God? So in Isaiah 31, uh, and in other places as well, we read... Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. On that, the Rabshaker is right. He's right for the wrong reasons, but he's right. They shouldn't be trusting in Egypt. Uh, Isaiah has told them already they should be trusting Yahweh. Well, the Rabshaker's speech goes on in verse 10. He says, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. So he's saying he's doing God's will. He's, he's there as an agent of Yahweh. 
Well, is this Yahweh's doing? In chapter 10, verse 5, uh, Yahweh has pronounced a woe on Assyria, and he's called them the rod of my anger. So that means he is going to use the Assyrians to punish his people, but not without limit. In chapter 10, verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So he says, yes, I'm raising the Assyrians up. Yes, they will do my work, but I'm going to punish them too because I know how they'll do it. And so we'll have to wait and see if Yahweh is true to his word. Will he punish the arrogant king of Assyria? We'll wait and see. So the Rabshake has put the question out there to these three representatives and by extension to the whole people of Jerusalem, in whom do you now trust? He says, why trust in Egypt? They have let you down. He's actually saying, don't trust in Yahweh. He's let you down too. So this is a test of the people's trust in a time of great threat. Now, again, we can read these words from the comfort of our lounge room and we can miss just how intimidating this was. Imagine having an army of several times the size of of a football crowd at your front gate waiting to do to you what you know they'd done to everybody else in the land. It must have been terrifying. King Ahaz failed with a much smaller military threat way back in chapter 7. He didn't trust God. And so will his son Hezekiah now succeed in faith where his father failed? That's the challenge. That's the question. And the challenge all the way along, stated in various ways, is to put your trust in Yahweh. And so in Isaiah 26 verses 3 and 4, there's this beautiful promise. It's a promise which I've quoted many times to people who are under threat, but it it first came at a time of of military threat to the people of, of Judah. And the words, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Well, do you believe that? That was the challenge to Hezekiah and to the people of Jerusalem, that perfect peace comes when we stay our minds, when we secure our minds with trust in the faithful God, our rock. Well, the story goes on, and Eliakim, Shebna and Johar come from Jerusalem. They're out there, and they answer the Rabshaker. They say, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. For we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak to these, these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? So they're saying, Would you speak to us in the trade language common to the whole area? We understand it, but the people up there don't. What they're saying is don't frighten the cattle. Don't scare those people up there. We'll take the message. And he says, no, they need to hear it too. Because if you don't do what I say, look at the the terrible consequences at the end. They'll be eating their own dung and drinking their own urine. Not an attractive prospect. Uh, Now, that's pretty gross, but it's in the Bible and we can't ignore it. That's what happens when people are put under siege for several years. The food runs out and you'll eat and drink anything. That's what he's saying. So verses 13 and 14, Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. 
This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he's saying you're being fooled by two people, by Hezekiah and your God. Don't listen to either of them. He says, listen to the, the king of Assyria. Make your peace. Then he says, then you will eat, not dung and urine. He says, you'll eat from your own vine and each one from his own fig tree and you will drink the water of his own cistern. In other words, peace will come when you submit, when you surrender, when you give in to the king of Assyria. He's saying, don't let Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered the, let their land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? He's treating Yahweh like any other god. And according to Yahweh, the gods of the nations are idols. The Rab Shaker is seriously misunderstanding. He's underestimating the God of the Bible. He's, un he's underestimating the God of the universe. He makes his proud boasts in the face of Judah's God. He's actually claiming to speak for God here. He distorts God's word and he holds Yahweh in contempt. Now, there's some lessons there for us as well because we will move among people who disregard God's word completely. We'll move among people who think they know enough of it to be able to tell us what it means. Occasionally you'll bump into people who claim to speak for God and whenever they do we need to test everything they say against God's word. But there's a very real sense in that Rab, the Rab Sheikh is falling into one of the oldest traps of all. This is exactly what the serpent did in the garden. He distorts God's word in attempting to get God's people to follow him rather than God himself. The Rab Shaker is doing the devil's work here, distorting God's word, trying to trip up the people of God, stop them obeying them in their time. So chapter 36 continues, And Eliakim, Shebna and Johar go to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and they pass on their report of all that the Rab Shaker said. Now tearing your clothes was a sign of ritual mourning. It was a sign that you were, you, you were penitent, that you were deeply sorrowful for your sin. It was a sign of great distress in the face of God. And so King Hezekiah, on, on hearing the news, he tears his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. He went into the temple. Eliakim, Shebna and the senior priests covered themselves with sackcloth and they went to the prophet Isaiah on King Hezekiah's behalf. They went with the message that the king of Assyria has mocked the living God. And so they plead with Isaiah, therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. For just that small little crew that's remaining, please Isaiah, pray for us. And so in 37, verses 5 to 7, when the king, servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. Because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumour and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So Hezekiah sent representatives to Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet has prayed. He's received a word from Yahweh himself, which he passes on. And the effect of that is that the people who receive the message must not fear. Do not be afraid. They're words that Jesus echoed, of course, many times to his disciples. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. No matter how great the threat, when Yahweh is with us, 
we have nothing to be fearful of. But the person who should be fearing is the king of Assyria because he has reviled God. He's underestimated him. He's spoken blasphemously about him. He's regarded him as no more than one of the gods of the nations and he's sure his own gods are greater. He has made an enemy of the living God and that's a terribly fearful place to be. And so God announces through the prophet what he's going to do. Sometimes prophets predict the future. Mostly they speak to the current situation, but here's an example of prediction. Isaiah says there's going to come a day when the king of Assyria will hear a rumour, return to his own land, and there he'll die. So will this come to pass? Will this actually come true? Is Yahweh sovereign? Will his words stand the test of the future? We'll see. So chapter 37, verse 8, the Rabshakeh returns and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. So the Rabshakeh comes back from Judah, goes to Lachish, and he goes on to Libna, where they're fighting there as well. Now, Tiharka, the king of Cush, Cush was a region of Upper Egypt. He comes and there's a fight there. And so on account of the the Egyptian army coming to make trouble for Assyria there at Libna, uh, the king of Assyria has another plan. He sends a letter to Hezekiah by the hand of the Rabshakeh for Hezekiah to be intimidated by this written document. And in there we read these, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Effectively saying, look, you might think I've got my hands full at the moment with these Egyptians who've come up from the south, but don't think that. Don't be misled. We haven't forgotten about you, Jerusalem. We're going to come and get you. Behold, you've heard that what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? 300 years of history of Assyria. And they've knocked over everybody. Why should you be different, Jerusalem, he's saying. So again, he's mocking God, saying, don't trust God. Don't let him deceive you. All the other nations have gone down. This is more reviling. He's digging a deeper and deeper hole for himself. So Hezekiah responds with prayer this time. And he goes into the temple. We read there in chapter 37, verses 16 to 20. And he pleads with with God revealed as the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts, God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Hezekiah appeals on the basis of what he knows of God, the Lord of heaven's armies, the God who lives among his people, uh, enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place of the temple, the God who not only created the whole world but the God who rescued his people out of Egypt and brought them into this land. And he says, please take heed to the threats of this, this king. And he continues, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands. Wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. There's something very interesting going on there. 
Hezekiah is a king who knows the good hand of God at, at work amongst his people. He's already demonstrated his faithfulness to Yahweh by removing the, the high places, the, uh, the evidence of the worship of strange gods. Now he acknowledges God's oneness and God's supremacy. He acknowledges that there is no other God but Yahweh. But he's not only asking these things for the convenience of him and his people. Notice at the end there that the whole thing is based on a desire that God glorify himself by defeating these imposter gods, these gods that have presumed that they can rule. O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the nations, all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. That's a very good model prayer. That's a bit like Jesus when he teaches us to, to, to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want God's name to be hallowed. We want it to be acknowledged as being supreme. We want God to be given his rightful place as the, the only God. But what does Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come. We want God's name to be hallowed and we want the conditions of the earth to be such that God's will will be done and won't be challenged. And that's what Hezekiah wants. He wants the whole world to see that Yahweh is God alone. He wants Yahweh's glory to be established in the earth. It's a great prayer and it's a model for us. What, what sort of things do you pray for? Do you deeply desire the things that Hezekiah prayed for? Do you deeply desire the things that Jesus instructed us to pray for? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib. So it's a demonstration of trust. He hasn't gone back to Egypt. He hasn't tried to fight this on his own. He's prayed, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. That's verse 22. Verse 23, Whom have you mocked and reviled against the Holy One of Israel? Yahweh's saying through the prophet, you don't know who you're dealing with when you speak of me in that way. And so in verse 29, Yahweh announces, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Yahweh again is announcing what he's going to do with the boastful, complacent king of Assyria, King Sennacherib. He's going to treat him as Sennacherib has treated so many of his victims. He's going to put a hook in his nose and a bit in his mouth, so to speak. He's going to turn him back by the way he came. See, that's how the Assyrians dealt with the people that they took captive. They took them out and they tied them to each other by piercing their noses. Very uncomfortable uh, really very, very painful. But it was not only to, to tie them together, but to show that they were conquered, to treat them with absolute disdain. And Yahweh says, what you've done to so many others, I will now do to you. Not, not literally, but, but figuratively. Sennacherib and his men are going to be dealt with and he will be led by the nose back to his home country. Barry Webb, the Australian scholar, in his commentary on these words, he says, because someone has prayed, God steps in 
and changes the course of history. That's what prayer does. Prayer is the means by which God has chosen to work. Uh, Who are we to pray? Well, God's commanded that we do. Jesus has instructed that we should. We bring our prayers to the God who is in control of everything. And it's a mysterious thing, but we're told to do it. And here we have the evidence that because Hezekiah prayed, God will step in. Do you believe that your prayers have an effect? We don't always know what they are, but we must believe because we've been told that this is how God works. Because someone prayed, God steps in and changes the course of history. And so more prediction. Isaiah 37 verse 30, this shall be the sign for you, God says. You're going to be eating from a fruitful field. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's going to re-establish his people in a country that will provide lavishly for all their needs, wheat and, and, and wine. Uh, they won't be eating it in Assyria, they'll be eating it in their own land and he will accomplish it for them. And so verses 33 to 35, uh, the threat of God is beginning to be made actual. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. So there's no way he's going to get a a centimetre closer to Jerusalem. He's going to be turned back. Why? Because Yahweh will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God is honouring the promises that he made to David, that he would never lack a descendant on the throne, that that he would rule the world through one of David's children. And so, again, the words, don't fear. We've been told already in verses 6 and 7, do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard. I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumour and return. And you know what happened? As we read it recorded there, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all these dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Shereza, his sons, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esharadon, his son, reigned in his place. And there, in just three short verses, is the end of the most powerful king on earth. No threat to the living God. He had come and reviled God, reviled him through his, his messenger, the Rabshakeh, trying to intimidate the people of Jerusalem. But for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of the promises that he'd made to David, Yahweh acted in response to the prayer of Hezekiah and predicting the outcome, he made it actual in history. And the king of Assyria went back to, to his land, to Nineveh, and the army, well, 185,000 of them were struck down by the angel of the Lord. You do not want to make the living God your enemy and you do not want to make a boast of it either. Years ago when I was leading a beach mission, one of the young fellows that we were doing some work with said one day, if you don't believe in God, what can he do about it? He thought it was a pretty good question. Well, whether you do or don't believe in God doesn't alter the fact that he's there. And if in your smugness and complacency you think, well, I don't believe in him, therefore I needn't worry about him. 
that doesn't alter the reality that God is real, that he is the creator, that he is the judge, and he cares when people run him down and dishonour him and continue in their rebellion against him. He is a powerful adversary if we continue to make him our enemy. And the Assyrians and their king found out in the most painful of ways that he is the Lord and the master of history and nothing happens by accident. So we've seen this threat and the promise, the threat of the Assyrian invasion in chapter 36 and 37. We've seen it right after the beautiful promise of a restored creation in chapter 35. We've seen an answer to the the question, is Yahweh really sovereign? All the way through up until these chapters, we've seen promises of God's sovereignty, promises of his control. Can his promises be trusted? Not just to be made but trusted in the actual events of history and we've seen it right here yes they can be now chapters 38 and 39 put a different slant on things and again we're forced to choose threat or promise but for now we see hezekiah respond in faith we see hezekiah respond through prayer to the threat that the assyrian invasion posed so yes yahweh is sovereign Yes, his, his words, his promises can be trusted. But the question now and the challenge that continues for us in our day is will we continue to trust and obey him? Will we trust him in the small things of our life? Will we trust him with the threats and, and the things that make us fearful that cause us to lose our sleep? Will we continue to honour him and his word and seek in our prayers that, that we want above all else for him to be honoured in the way that we live? Well, that remains a question and a challenge for each new day. Every new day is a new opportunity to trust God and to prove that trust by obeying him. And so the challenge of these chapters is where is your confidence? That's what the Rabshakeh came and he said to, to the people of Jerusalem. That's what he said to King Hezekiah. What are you putting your trust in? If it's Egypt, well, they've let you down. Don't listen to your God because we've already partway beaten him just like we've beaten everyone else. Where is your confidence? Remember that God says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever. Why? Because he's an everlasting rock. Now here's a challenge for us. Why doesn't God punish arrogant rebels now? There's plenty of people who speak mocking words about God. There's plenty of people who disregard God's people and treat them shamefully. Why doesn't he punish arrogant rebels in exactly the way that he punished Sennacherib? Why doesn't he do it in our time? Well, the answer is he will. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 to 10 have very important things to say about this because there is a challenge here. And occasionally people will say to you, why doesn't God do something about it? And the answer to that is he will. He's going to. 2 Peter 3, 9-10, The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The reason why God doesn't intervene to punish people in the way that he did in that history that we've seen 
is because at an actual point in history that we're still working our way towards, he is going to step in. But in the meantime, we live in the era of his patience where he reaches out and says, turn, turn away from those sins that will expose you to my wrath, that will expose you to my judgment and separation from me in hell for eternity. Yahweh is, is still speaking, still calling for people to turn to him through his son, the Lord Jesus. That's why he doesn't deal with everything that causes us displeasure now. That's why he doesn't deal with all injustice right away because there is a day when he will and he'll deal with all of it, including those secret sins that you and I harbour and cherish and secretly enjoy. He's going to deal with them as well. At the moment, we live in the day of his patience and the challenge for us is what are we trusting in? What are we trusting in for for, for fulfilment? What are we trusting in for joy? What are we trusting in for solutions to our problems? Our trust needs to be in God and his crucified and risen son and it needs to be expressed in obedience to his word, not seeking to make allies of, of powers that are ranged against him, not seeking to do business in the way that the world does, but living in a way which is faithful to God and his character and all that he requires of us. So the challenge, as we've read Isaiah 36 and 37, is where is your confidence? Is it in God, his kingly son and his word, or is it somewhere else? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these these words. We thank you because you are sovereign. You are the creator. This is your world. Uh, there is nothing that happens over which you are not in control, and we're grateful for that. But we ask that you would move by your Holy Spirit deep in our hearts to convict us of our own sin and to cause us to hate those things that, that we do that displease you. Uh, we thank you that you've paid the price for our sins through the Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would enable us by your grace to live lives of confidence in you and obedience for you uh, and help us to persevere in these things, even in trying times, difficult and dangerous times. We pray that our hope and our trust and our confidence would continue to be in you. May we desire above everything else uh, that your name be honoured, that your name be glorified, that, uh, that the people of the world come to honour you as the world's one true God. Father, we pray that you would help us to take to heart these things that we've seen exemplified in your control of history today and in the history that you've given us to live in, we pray that you would help us to remain faithful. We pray all these things for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.